Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together we research and break down complex issues facing our society. We bring you those breakdowns every other week, and we promise to bring you honest analysis backed by research. And maybe, hopefully, a little humor. A lot of the things we cover are pretty heavy topics, so we recommend getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Although, you might not need as stiff a drink to get you through this episode. We've been talking about systemic racism and really digging into the impacts that both explicitly and systemically racist policies and programs have had on people of color in America. And if you're ready for some heavy listening, we'd love it if you gave those episodes a listen. But today it's time for a little break. Yeah, we will return to the systemic racism topic. We just decided maybe something a little lighter this time around. Exactly. So what are we going to talk about this time? Mail-in voting. This topic is really important because there's an election coming in something like 100 days. And if you hadn't noticed, there's a lot going on in the United States that potentially could change the landscape of our politics and our elections for the foreseeable future. So grab that drink if you want it, find a comfy seat, and let's talk about mailing in our votes for the 2020 election. Welcome to our fireside. I don't know about the rest of you, but... I'm ready to actually get to the bottom of mail-in voting for the 2020 election. There is so much information going around. One side says this, one side says that. It's hard to know what is true, what's being exaggerated. So here's what we're going to cover in this episode. Um, We're going to talk about why it's a current hot topic, what's going on that makes it relevant right now. We'll talk about the history of voting by mail in the United States. We'll talk about uh, what the vote by mail process looks like for the 2020 election. Uh, We'll look at some of the objections to mail in voting and see if we can where we can find research to provide better context. And we'll look at some of the arguments for mail in voting. And again, we're going to try to find as much research as we can about these topics. We have the benefit of looking back at our research before we record this, and I can just say up front, it's hard. It's hard to find research for this particular topic. A lot of it is, I mean, it's relatively new as a topic of interest, so it doesn't really drive a lot of specific research in the past. A lot of the research we came across was tangential, was not directly focused on mail-in voting, but on voting in general and how mail-in voting ties into some of the benefits and problems with larger issues in voting, uh, if that makes any sense. But we did find a lot of really good information and just because it was hard doesn't mean it wasn't out there. I'm just saying this was actually a little harder to research actually, I think, than the systemic racism topics. Definitely required a lot more digging, and there was a lot more focused in a much narrower area, but I think that that really speaks to 
the uncharted territory that we're in with this election and this pandemic and trying to take systems that have worked on a smaller scale and bring them into a national scale. So uh, we'll see as the research plays out, there's a lot to go off of, but there's not a whole lot of, of direct research on what we're getting ready to potentially undertake for this mm-hmm. election. Mm-hmm. So once we've covered all those things, we'll give you our Cliff's Notes summary of what we learned and then discuss whether or not we think the research indicates that it's safe to vote by mail or not. And then, of course, we'll probably insert some of our own personal opinions. But we'll make sure that those don't get confused with factual information. And who knows, maybe we'll throw in a rant or two for good measure. I love a good rant. I have so many ready. Anyway, sorry. No, that's good. We Everybody loves a good rant. So again, why are we even having this conversation right now? Because there's a lot of conflicting information out there. A lot of inflammatory information is flying around about mail-in voting. Some people are convinced that mail-in voting will be irreparably compromised. And some people are convinced that it isn't a problem at all and we should just implement it full scale. So we figured we would do our best to dig through the data and help our listeners and ourselves understand more about the system and what the truth of the matter really is. This year, there's considerable incentive for people to consider alternate voting methods. Yeah, it feels... It feels almost too obvious to bring this up, but uh, for future archaeologists digging through old (laughs) recordings to understand the wild 2020s, uh, we'll go ahead and touch on it. The planet, if you didn't know, is currently dealing with a global pandemic. Entire countries have gone on lockdown in an effort to contain the spread of a disease officially designated SARS-CoV-2, more commonly referred to as coronavirus or COVID-19. So regardless of your personal feelings of the lethality of the virus, the fact remains that people are dying from it. The U.S. has been hit particularly hard, though we comprise only 4% of the world's population, roughly 25% of the global deaths caused by COVID-19 have happened in the U.S., at least based on official numbers at the time of this recording. We're not going to we're not going to spend time trying to divine why that is. What's important to know is that it is happening. That is the context with which we are approaching our elections. It is deadly and it does have a lot of sensible Americans scared. We know that gathering in large groups increases the chances of someone contracting the virus and allegedly due to the pandemic, many voting locations have been shut down meaning those that remain open will have to handle more people. It's not a great situation for citizens, especially older citizens, trying to exercise their rights. To counterbalance this pandemic, however, many states are expanding their vote-by-mail options. Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, and Washington already have all-mail elections, where ballots are automatically sent to every registered voter. Arizona and California allow voters to add themselves to a permanent list for mail-in voting. Um, Nevada just expanded their mail-in voting to allow more participation. And 22 states conduct at least some elections by mail, meaning every registered voter is sent a ballot that the voter may then complete and return by mail during a specified period. 
other states, many other states, are considering options to expand their own mail-in programs or to enact them at all. The current president, Donald Trump, and many of his administration officials have come out enthusiastically against vote-by-mail programs. These programs, the president claims, will lead to rampant fraud and prevent voters from ever knowing the true outcome of the election, except, of course, he's going to win. He has threatened to withhold funding even to Nevada and Michigan in retribution for their expressed intent to expand their vote-by-mail systems. And in what might be his most radical statement about the process yet, Trump has even suggested that it may be necessary to delay the election altogether rather than allow expanded absentee voting. Which he does not have the power to do. No. (laughs) Something that's interesting to me is that one of his arguments is, small tangent, sorry, one of his arguments (laughs) is that we won't know the night of the election who the next president is going to be. Which is funny because technically speaking, we don't know that anyway. Right? The official results, the official electoral votes aren't cast until six weeks after the actual election. And that's when the next president is officially determined. So I, it's, right. yeah, it's just a little bit of a silly argument to me it's it's incredibly silly and again if we're if we're talking to future archaeologists this is this response is part of a pattern that we've seen from this president for the last four years and so it may seem that we're we're treating his suggestion that we delay the election lightly but at this point I don't even know that this is the most outrageous statement he's made so far in his presidency. So we're just kind of rolling with it. A lot has been normalized in the last four years, but that is a topic for a different day. Exactly. So are we ready to talk history? Absolutely. Let's get down to business. Okay. Here's what the history of absentee voting in America looks like. According to the Constitutional Accountability Center... One of the earliest known instances of absentee voting occurred in December 1775, when a group of soldiers from the Continental Army sent a letter back to their town asking if their votes could be counted in a local election. So at a town meeting to discuss the issue, the town agreed to count the votes as if the men were present themselves. And then the process that we are more comfortable with and we now know as absentee voting began during the Civil War when both Union and Confederate soldiers were given the opportunity to cast their ballots from their battlefield stations and have them counted in their home states. Wisconsin led the way, and many states followed suit. Uh, Interestingly enough, Democrats absolutely opposed these absentee ballots at that point because they believed that the soldiers would vote for Republican candidates. And Mm. spoilers, that (laughs) rhetoric sounds really familiar. I think we've said this before, the more things change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) Exactly. So by the time that the election in 1862 had concluded, 19 states had absentee procedures and about 150,000 of the million Union soldiers voted 
absentee. This process continued during both world wars. And in fact, between 1911 and 1924, 45 of the then 48 states had adopted some kind of absentee voting. And then this process was formalized by the the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act that was enacted by Congress in 1986 and then amended in 2009 with a subtitle of the National Defense Authorization Act for Fiscal Year 2010, um, titled the Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment Act, or the MOVE Act, which established new voter registration and absentee ballot procedures for the folks that were covered in that previous um, act and made it so that all states must allow that kind of voting in federal elections. In a referendum passed in 1998, Oregon actually jumped headlong into the vote-by-mail process. They agreed not only to allow voters to cast their vote in absentia, but to also issue all of its ballots by mail. Voters could vote in their physical absence from the polling booth, basically. Washington followed suit in 2011 and Colorado in 2013. A misunderstanding, I think, about these systems is that voters, when they receive their ballot by mail, are then required to return their ballot by mail. And that's actually not a requirement. They can receive their ballot by mail and then physically turn it in at an election location if they so desire. There's no stipulation on how they get their ballot back. It just delivers the ballot to them. So according to responses to the 2016 survey of the performance of American elections, 73% of voters in Colorado, 59% in Oregon, and 65% in Washington returned their ballots to some physical location, such as a drop box or local election office. Even among those who returned their ballots by mail in these states, 47% dropped off their ballot at a U.S. post office or neighborhood mailbox rather than having their own postal worker pick it up at home. Basically giving themselves, I guess, a little more security of mind, peace of mind rather, that their ballot is actually in the mail system. In 2016, 33 million votes, nearly 25% of the U.S. votes that year, were cast by mail. By 2018, 27 states had adopted no-excuse absentee laws, meaning you didn't have to have an excused absence to request an absentee ballot. Now, in 2020, many states are considering expanding their absentee and vote-by-mail programs to accommodate those whose votes may be impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, it seems that much of the concern about the reliability and safety of voting by mail revolves around the process. Who gets the ballots? How do they get them? What does it look like to cast that vote? So we're going to talk a little bit through the process of of what casting a mail-in vote looks like in 2020. There are two kinds of mail balloting systems. Some states have what are called universal vote by mail, in which states mail ballots to all voters. In most states, however, vote-by-mail is through absentee balloting, in which the voter must request an absentee ballot. Since states have the power to create their own election process and regulations, as long as they don't violate any constitutional or federal standards, such as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, 
Um, those procedures and regulations can be changed at the state legislative and executive level. So in states that allow absentee mail balloting, the voter writes, calls, or goes online to request an absentee ballot from their local election authority. In some places, voters need an excuse for the absentee ballot. This could include being sick or out of the state on election day. In other places, voters do not need to have a specific reason for the absentee ballot. The state then provides the option by mailing absentee ballots to all registered voters. Many states are moving to the system, um, generally referred to as no excuse absentee balloting. The actual voting process varies by state because they do have this kind of control over their own procedures, but here's how it generally works. In these states that have absentee procedures, the process begins, again, when the voter requests that absentee ballot. There's generally a time frame in which they're allowed to do that to allow for appropriate delivery of the ballot and return time for the ballot. And in those cases, the voters must provide their name and their mailing address. And in many cases, that mailing address has to, and the name, have to line up with the voter registration record. Mm -hmm. The ballots are then delivered by the United States Postal Service and generally include both a security envelope, which conceals and obscures the actual ballot to protect the privacy of the vote, and then a return envelope. Sometimes our postage paid, sometimes the voter is responsible for the postage on that. And very often they include a scannable barcode. And that will come into play in a little bit later. So then once the ballot is received, the voter is instructed to make their vote and then sign an indicated spot on the outside envelope to indicate that they are a registered voter and then return that vote in whatever way is most appropriate for their state, whether that's by mail, whether that's a drop-off. And then once they receive the ballot, those local election authorities will check the name of the voter to make sure that that person is actually registered to vote and that the address that the ballot came from is their registered address. And if that's the case, then in many situations, they'll compare the signatures to the voter registration signature that is on file. Not every state does this, but many states, especially the ones that have all-male elections, this is an essential part of their security process. So once they've done those checks and they've assured that, to their best knowledge, the vote came from the person who is actually registered to vote at that address and that the signatures match up, they remove the ballot from the outside envelope and then file the still-sealed ballot in that security envelope to be counted by officials on election day. So the votes are not even opened until it is actually election day. Once the voting process begins, the linchpin of the security of that process is the ballot return envelope that has that signature and a unique barcode that is linked to that voter's record. When that ballot is returned and verified and the barcode is scanned, no other ballot can be cast for that voter in that election. It's like when you get your movie tickets online and some of you probably still print them out to take with you to the theater rather than having the app on your phone. It would be like if you decided you were going to make a bunch of photocopies of your movie ticket and try to get all of your friends into the movies. 
Once one of those barcodes is scanned, the system shows that the ticket has been used and no one else is allowed to use that ticket. It's very much the same in these barcode systems for mail-in elections. And these all-mail states, the ones that have been doing this for a significant amount of time, have implemented a range of other safeguards to ensure that the ballots are secure at all times, including secure drop boxes with 24-hour surveillance cameras, rules that two people have to be present with any ballot from the moment of receipt or collection, and then detailed logs and reconciliation rules that require all votes to be accounted for down to the ballot. A lot of those sound like the, um, the chain of custody rules that law enforcement has to maintain a, an accurate record of where evidence has traveled and who held it and at what time uh, from when it was collected to when it will be present you know, or used in a case. Uh, so I, that's actually really interesting to me. It, it kind of makes sense in my head. I don't, obviously this is just an opinion, but if the procedures are good enough to keep our evidence under control right. for cases that will send people to prison for life or to death row, it seems, seems sensible to use those same procedures for uh, keeping track of our, our votes, our ballots. Exactly. As we're going to touch on later, not every state that is considering expanding their vote-by-mail process has these systems in place yet. So when we start to talk about objections and concerns, we will have to factor that part in. But now that we know a little bit more about what it looks like to vote by mail, we can talk more about the naysayers. It really seems like those who are opposed to voting by mail have this very long list of very dramatic reasons why this is absolutely the worst plan that we could possibly come up with. There's definitely been a a concerted effort to uh, undermine the process. And I think anybody who has been paying attention will agree to that. Now, whether or not they would use the term undermine or use the term shed light on, Mm -hmm. we can can talk about semantics later. But there is a lot going on right now talking about how dangerous this process is, how much we'd have to... (sighs) look out for and and most concerning to me is the steady drumbeat from certain actors saying that this will invalidate election results. That is terrifying from a national security perspective, from a uh, citizen of the United States perspective. That is not great to do. I don't like it. I don't like it. I feel like if there are legitimate concerns then you shouldn't be crowing about them from, you know, the rooftops. You should be working to address those concerns. Well, my biggest problem with all of this naysaying comes from the fact that there's a lot of naysaying without a lot of evidence being presented. So that's the whole purpose of this podcast and especially this section. Um, I mean, first and foremost on the list of objections to vote-by-mail elections is the concern about fraud. The president himself has, on multiple occasions, expressed his concerns about what voting by mail might mean for the November election. Here is one of my, I don't want to say favorites, but here's a really solid sound clip that will reinforce his thoughts on the matter. 
So you were highly critical of mail-in voting, mailing your mail-in ballots for voting. I think mail-in voting ago, is horrible. You voted by it's mail corrupt. in Florida's election last month, didn't you? Sure, I, I could vote by mail for the. How do you reconcile because that? I'm allowed to. Well, that's called out of state. You know why I voted? Because I happen to be in the White House, and I won't be able to go to Florida to vote. But let me just say, well, there's a big difference between somebody that's out of state and does a ballot and everything sealed, certified, and everything else. You see what you have to do with the certifications. And you get thousands and thousands of people sitting in somebody's living room signing ballots all over the place. No, I think that mail-in voting is a terrible thing. I think if you vote, you should go. And even the concept of early voting is not the greatest, because a lot of things happen. But it's okay. But you should go and you should vote. I think you should go and you should vote. You look at what they do, where they grab thousands of mail-in ballots and they dump it. I'll tell you what, and I don't have to tell you, you can look at the statistics. There's a lot of dishonesty going along with mail-in voting, mail-in ballots. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd say that pretty much lays it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so is there any evidence to support this concern? It's debatable. It's debatable. So as with all forms of voter fraud, documented instances of fraud related to vote by mail are incredibly rare. The Brennan Center for Justice at NYU found that an American is more likely to be struck by lightning than to try to impersonate someone else at the polls. But it's not just enough to say that it's rare. We have to take a look at some of the statistics. So one Washington Post analysis of data collected by three vote-by-mail states with the help from the nonprofit Electronic Registration Information Center, ERIC, which they have their hands in a lot of elect electronic data monitoring and consistency work, found that officials identified just 372 possible cases of double voting or voting on behalf of deceased people out of about 14.6 million votes cast by mail in the 2016 and 2018 general elections, or just 0.0025%. That's pretty insignificant. It's uh. incredibly insignificant. Um, and it, it really, it's striking when you compare it to claims that in previous elections, millions of votes have been cast by, uh, by dead people. Right. I'm, it is, I think, incredibly important to note that there was a commission that was created by the current administration to investigate voter fraud. Yes. And it was disbanded after failing to find significant levels of voter fraud. Right. I believe that that was immediately after um, the 2016 election when President Trump claimed that he would have won the popular vote if it was not for millions of illegal voters. Um, and so that commission was intended to... Find those voters. Find that vote. Um and it was unable to do so. So do with that what you will, mm. listeners. But again, we're not we're not unaccustomed to the current president making some very significant claims without much evidence to back them up. 
Oregon, um, which held its first statewide mail election in 1993, has had just 82 felony convictions under its election statutes between 1990 and 2019. So that's 29 years. Um, and that includes all election fraud offenses, according to public records obtained from the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission. So in 29 years of voting, 82 felony convictions. And then uh, a database maintained by the Heritage Foundation, which is a hallmark conservative organization, often used as a reference for yeah. those making the case that voter fraud is rampant. Yeah. Lists Mer Mercedes Schlapp, is that her name? Oh, Seems gosh. Seems to be a big favorite of, or a fan of the website without actually reading the website. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, the Heritage Foundation is a really strong favorite amongst conservatives, especially those opposed to vote by mail. Um, but even their huge database of voter fraud cases, which has been touted as the strongest evidence for voter fraud out there right now, lists only 1,290 cases out of hundreds of millions of votes cast. Um, and the number of cases related to absentee ballots, this mail-in voting process, is even less. So 204 cases in the past 20 years compared with something like a quarter billion votes cast by mail during that time. Um, and that analysis was done in April by Amber McReynolds, who is the chief executive of the National Vote at Home Institute and a former Denver elections uh, director. So if you remember, Colorado is one of those states that does have an extensive vote by mail program. And she partnered with Charles Stewart III, who is a political science professor at MIT. So they undertook a huge analysis of this data in April. And while it must be noted that Amber, who spearheaded that effort, does basically stake her entire career on um, promoting vote at home. So if you are one of those people who needs to acknowledge bias in research, we all are. Just keep that in your mind. Um, but that's, if you take those numbers and break them down, that's one six millionth of 1%. And I actually had to write that in words because I am not sciencey enough to know how to write that in decimals. It's one of, six millionth of 1%. Yeah, I doubt that would, I don't, there are very, very few elections that are determined by that narrow of a margin. I would be willing to bet it's zero elections are determined by that narrow <laughs> margin. Um, so even if all of these cases happened at the same time, it is highly unlikely that they would actually sway the outcome of an election. Correct. And this happened over the course of 20 years. 20 years. So. Um, Hans von Spakovsky who is the manager of the Heritage Foundation's election law reform initiative, did say in a statement that their database is only a sampling and not a comprehensive list, um, which is a little bit of a reversal as to how the information has been presented. Yeah. Um, but again, do with you what, that, what you will. Um, it may only be a sampling of the voter fraud cases. I, I doubt that, to be honest. Most statistics have backed up those numbers being about the maximum extent of evidence of voter fraud in American elections. 
That is really interesting because they do, or rather this information is often presented, uh, or Heritage Foundation's information is often presented as like this final damnation, like the nail in the coffin coffin of, you know, voting ideas, especially mail-in voting. If, if people can get the data to say what they want to say. So the manager of the Heritage Election Law Reform Initiative saying, well, maybe don't. Yeah. It's like, may, oh. may, it's not comprehensive, but it's, it's just an example of, of how vulnerable our system is to, to fraud. Right. Um, Which if it is, it doesn't do a, uh, like if that's what, if that's the argument he's trying to make, I don't see that that is a strong argument because we're talking about fractions of fractions of a percent. I don't know. It is it feels a lot like people are playing both sides of the fence here to get what they want. Exactly. The argument is not compelling for widespread fraud in any election, let alone vote by mail election. And again, the the very few cases of voter fraud that have been documented tend to be really localized. For example, in 2018, North Carolina Republicans were cited for election fraud involving mail ballots. A campaign staff member who worked for Mark Harris in the 9th Congressional District race was indicted for mishandling mail ballots and also asking other people to engage in election fraud. Um, That investigation is, as far as I know, still ongoing. The election was overturned and a a revote was called for. So in those localized cases, very often if, if fraud is detected, it's dealt with swiftly and effectively. Hmm. Very rarely, if ever, I could not find a single case in which fraud was suspected and not dealt with immediately to to negate, to to negate the fraud. Like, yeah. I wasn't able to find a case either where the fraud was allowed to stand. Exactly. It's if, if it happens, when it happens, I should say, it's usually dealt with, rectified, and, and, and corrected in short order, or relatively short order for how slow our government can move. And I, I did not find a single case in which it impacted anything larger than a local election. Right, yeah. But there is... Again, there's that valid concern that a push to move to widespread vote by mail will place some of these election security burdens on states that are unprepared for them. For example, Connecticut, Maryland, and New Hampshire don't have those signature verification rules. There are several states that are looking at increasing their vote by mail process, and they do not already have these tested election security systems in place. So we do have to acknowledge that this is uncharted territory moving forward. Yeah. There are arguments to be made against it, against the system. Unfortunately for detractors from vote by mail, those arguments have answers already. The arguments that they're using don't seem to be as robust (laughs) as they should be to override a system like this. One of those arguments... That is, it's prevalent right now because of the current party in power, but it would be, as we saw historically, it has worked both ways. Republicans currently fear mail-in balloting will result in increased votes for Democrats. 
I think we could broaden that out a little bit to say any party in power would probably think that a, a, a wider selection of voters would favor their opponent. I don't think that's accurate, but I think it is a fear that anybody in control would have. There currently is a general sentiment among conservatives, again spearheaded by the president, that an expanded vote-by-mail system will lead to a swell of Democratic voters. The research doesn't really back up that claim, though. A major study of California, Utah, and Washington State, conducted by Daniel Thompson, Jesse Yoder, Jennifer Wu, and Andrew Hall of Stanford University, looked at elections between 1996 and 2018 and concluded there was no real partisan advantage to for to or for either party based solely on voting by mail. Republicans have won in legislative districts having a large number of mail-in ballots. A 2020 California special election for Congress, for example, the Republican captured a seat that previously had been held by Democrats. They did so by getting out the vote and making sure their voters had access to absentee ballots. Uh, and R Street, sorry, the R Street Institute noted that former Republican Senator Gordon Smith was elected in Oregon after the state moved to an all-male model. Uh, Republican Senator Cory Gardner was elected in Colorado after the state expanded absentee balloting. So there is potential for conservative officials to be elected by this system. And that's simply because the system doesn't really favor anybody one way or the other. Because vote-by-mail programs increase voter turnout in general, the practical advantage seems to go to whichever party has the most adherence in a polling area. Or, or not even that, does a better job convincing their people to get out and vote. However, the fear of this particular system in this election being favorable to Democrats might actually turn out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. A lot of polling has shown decreasing favorability among Republicans for mail-in voting. It seems... (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's very ironic. It seems that the constant attacks on the idea of vote-by-mail from the White House, in fact, is undermining faith in our electoral process, but only in people who normally listen to and care about information coming from the White House. I I just feel really sad that we have to qualify that. Yeah. We have to say only people who care about information coming from the White House. Yeah. That just... (laughs) That's not the... It shouldn't be the case. Like... Uh, I digress. But, but I digress. I could I could spend some time talking about why that is and what's happening, but I think former Republican National Committee Chairman Michael Steele said it best, and this is a direct quote from him. This is not my words. He said, The fact that you have so-called party leaders parroting Trump's BS on vote-by-mail is basically putting a knife to their own electoral throats. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Some Republican groups, like the Pennsylvania Republican Party, 
are working to counter this perceived advantage by mobilizing their own voters. Uh, and in fact, last week, President Trump tried, I think, to counter his own messaging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As with many things coming out of the White House, there is a lot of chaos surrounding this. He said that Florida should vote by mail, but that Nevada shouldn't. I mean, he didn't say th those words. He supported vote by mail in Florida because the governors there, his words were very good Republican governors, uh, had somehow made the election, made the process more secure. At the same time, his administration is suing Nevada for their expanded vote by mail procedures. So the subtext of that, I think, is pretty obvious and it seems patently duplicitous. <sighs> but you can tell now, you can see now that Republicans are kind of twigging to the fact that maybe this wasn't the best idea for them to, to harp on. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting. Another concern that has to be acknowledged with these large-scale vote-by-mail programs is that they may actually disenfranchise some of the voters that you would think that it would benefit. Um, I know that seems kind of like the opposite of the last concern, so Republicans are concerned that it's going to benefit the Democratic Party because it's going to turn out more Democratic voters, but there's also a concern that it could disenfranchise some potentially Democratic voters. At least in 2007, under the all-male voting system in Oregon, participation was significantly lower in precincts that had more Hispanic, Asian, Black, or multi-ethnicity residents. And that would seem counterintuitive, but when you begin to think about why this might be, you can see a lot of the familiar themes arising if you've been listening to our previous episodes on systemic racism. We know that minority citizens are less likely to have permanent addresses than non-minority citizens. They're more apt to live in areas with inconsistent mail delivery. They're more prone to not return the mail that they receive. Um, and even further, minority citizens are more likely to speak a language other than English at home and therefore either struggle to understand the ballot or not vote at all if the ballots are sent without consideration for Americans who speak other languages. Seems like an appropriate time to remind people that we don't have an official language in the United States. So there, there's constantly an argument that people should speak English if they come here, but there's literally no reason why we shouldn't send out official government documents in other languages uh, other than certain groups don't like seeing other languages. Exactly. I know that when I received U.S. Census information this year, there was an option to access all of that in Spanish, which I think is fantastic. Right. I mean, we have a, massing, a massive uh, Spanish-speaking population, and you know, many of them speak English too. But if it's your native language, you might be more comfortable accessing this important information in a language that you grew up speaking and conceptualizing. It makes sense to me that we provide the easiest path possible to understanding this information. Exactly, especially when you consider that 
elections are not just choosing one candidate over another. In many local and state elections, you have complicated amendments and ballot issues that if you're not a native English speaker, I mean, even if you are a native English speaker, the language is so flowery and so vague and so obtuse that we rely on secondary sources to determine what the ballot language actually says before we go to our polling place. Right. So if you are a non-English speaker and that ballot information is not available to you in a language that you understand or speak well enough to pick up on the nuances, then you may end up voting for something you don't understand, or you may choose not to cast your vote at all on those issues. Yeah. I mean, I know every every time an election comes up and there's a ballot initiative on it, like <laughs> there's always a flyer that goes out that explains what voting yes will do, what voting no will do. And the number of times voting yes actually ended something and voting no actually continued something or started something is, I I honestly can't calculate it. I don't remember, but it is frustrating to me that we are not required to write our laws or at least the, 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 the part of the ballot that we're voting on those laws in plain language. Um, or at least write it both in plain English or plain language and in the actual legal uh, language of it. Now, I, a lot of the ones, I've, a lot of the elections that I voted in out here in Virginia, they actually do have like the actual legal language on it. And then underneath it'll say voting yes will do this, voting no will do this. Oh man, that's awesome. Because yeah. here in Missouri, in our August primary, we actually just voted on an amendment to expand Medicaid, and not even our local news sources could parse out the actual implications of voting yes or voting no on this amendment. It was left up to individual politicians to try to explain, and they are not very well spoken, and they couldn't explain it effectively. And so it passed fairly narrowly, but many folks were left wondering what exactly they just committed Missouri state funds to. Again, another topic, but how we write our laws and the words we use and the way they're passed is frustratingly complex, not only for the layperson, but for the people actually doing it. For the for our lawmakers, a lot of them they can't communicate what the law is actually doing based on the reading of the law. Uh, mm. Yeah. Anyway, a little off topic there, but another Remember reason. Remember when we said we weren't going to rant. I know, I know, we failed. <laughs> uh, I told you, I already, I always have them ready to go. Just like a whole deck of rants, just ready. I could pull a card and send the poor listener to the shadow realm. It's bad. Um <laughs> The deck of many rants. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Yeah, both of ours are showing. Uh, dear listener, we're actually recording this earlier in the day than we normally do, like 12 hours earlier than we normally do, which means it's kind of early in the morning for both of us. So we might be a little slap happy. A little slap happy. Anyway, so the next objection that's brought up frequently um, is one I actually agree with, or 
I don't know if I agree with the objection. I have a lot of questions that need answered that fall into this category. That's the practice of ballot harvesting. And very simply, ballot harvesting is where a political party or a union or an activist group will disperse to collect people's ballots with the understanding that they will deliver those ballots to election offices, right? Right. You vote at home. You don't want to put it in the mail. You give it to what is supposed to be a trusted official to deliver that to the election offices. This really feels like where everything could potentially go sideways. It's a, I, exactly why I'm torn on this one myself. Like, it is a huge weak point. So, on the one hand, this introduces the opportunity for pretty significant meddling, right? Obviously, people professing to be harvesting ballots could show up in a specific demographic neighborhood, right? And collect the ballots and then never deliver them. In this way, a group might sway the results of an election. I think on a national scale, that would be much harder to do. But for local elections that determine far more significant issues to everyday Americans, I think, than our national elections do, this could be a huge issue. And more murky than that even, though, is this idea that harvesters might show up to a house where someone hasn't voted yet, or they don't intend to vote, and then they then attempt to sway that person, either to vote or to change their vote or to vote for a specific candidate. And I'm, I'm not against people talking to each other to decide who to vote for. But it's one thing when it's me, John, talking to you, Robin, as humans, going, I'm thinking about this, this candidate says this, It's another thing entirely if I were to speak to a member of Biden's campaign, right? And I said, hey, listen, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I'm just, I'm real upset about this. I mean, the campaign official would have basically unlimited time to just sell me on (laughs) Biden. Yeah. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good thing. I think arguments like that, if they're coming from a campaign, you should know that they're coming from the campaign. And I'm not sure that these ballot harvesters actually have to disclose that they're there on behalf of X or Y campaign. Um, And so that's just so iffy to me. That seems a very kind of slippery slope, and I hate using slippery slope arguments, but it does seem like it it could lead to some issues. Um, Ultimately, how a person reaches their decision is up to them. I am just concerned at the prospect of this harvester being a political actor and not actually helping the voter reach the best decision for the voter. It's a complex issue. It does raise legitimate concerns. On the whole, though, I don't think ballot harvesting is a major issue. And here's why. The only state that allows ballot harvesting is California. In every other state, it is not legal for somebody to go out and collect ballots and transport them to the election uh, officials or where those ballots are going to be counted. On the other hand, (laughs) this is why I get torn about this one. There are groups that would be negatively impacted by not having ballot harvesting that I should say are negatively impacted by it. Let's... Let's take Native Americans. 
And I like, I, I'm happy I found this research because it kind of highlights some of the issues we're talking about from a systemic perspective and how that impacts something specific like voting. In 2016, Arizona passed a law making it a felony for individuals to collect and turn in another voter's completed ballot. It is now unlawful for a neighbor or friend to return another's filled-in ballot to a mailbox or election office. There are some exceptions for like caretakers and family members, but not everybody has those. <laughs> this is particularly burdensome for the Native American population because only approximately 25% of, of Native households have access to a car. And American Indians, at least in Arizona, and American Indians also often rely on neighbors to run errands, especially given the high elderly population on reservations. It's something like 10% of the population in Arizona, which is fairly significant. Laws like this, the inability for somebody to transport your ballot for you, place a very high burden on American Indians to return each individual ballot and make voters afraid of potentially breaking the law. That's a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, you don't want people returning a whole host of ballots because it does introduce the opportunity for that meddling. But on the other hand, if a, a person were to give their ballot to a, a trusted neighbor or friend to return for them then that could also potentially be unlawful. Yeah. It makes me wonder if there should be some sort of designated independent group who, if you are going to allow ballot harvesting, that group would have to be the one to do it. Like, yeah. you can't be a political actor. You can't be affiliated with any campaign. And the group would have to be harvest, uh, harvested. The group would have to be uh, vetted and, and something like that. I don't know if that would be an effective solution that's just something off the top of my head that could be done that might right. might make this better. So if, if we're talking personal objections here, there's an objection that I actually have a very hard time accepting as well. Um, and that is that skeptics of convenience voting methods like vote by mail argue that they encourage their voters, they encourage voters to cast their ballots before all of the information from the campaign is revealed, thus putting early voters at a civic disadvantage. I have a bit of a soapbox about this. I have a story about this. I will okay, tell you, you my tell story. Okay, you tell your story and then I'll get up on my soapbox. So I'm telling the story with the understanding that this is anecdotal, so this is not necessarily representative of an entire population. But this is, this is an objection that does have some merit. I... I don't have permission to share this story from the person that it's about, so edited for privacy. But I, <laughs> I know somebody who, in the 2016 election, cast their ballot by mail because they were going to be out of state. And they voted before Trump, before the Access Hollywood tape, where Trump says that he's going to grab a woman by the pussy or that he likes to do that, whatever, before that was leaked. This person was, and currently is rather, conflicted and regrets their vote because of that, because that offended specific moral principles that they have. 
about behavior and how a person should act. They say they would change their vote if they could go back and do it again. And that was, I mean, there's more reasons why they would now, but that was the first thing that made them reconsider their vote and, and regret it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be clear, my objection is not with the idea that voters may cast their vote before information comes out during the election. My objection is with the idea that the entire election timeline should be bound by the rate at which political candidates decide to release either positive information about themselves or negative information about their opponents. I feel like it's absurd and it's melodramatic and outright manipulative to hold the right to vote hostage to an October surprise situation. Um, if you want voters to have all the information that they need to cast their vote for you or in dire circumstances against your opponent, you need to give them all the information that they need up front. I come from a PR and communications background. I understand the, the process of releasing information bit by bit for dramatic effect. This is part of my world, and I know exactly how you shape these campaigns in order to have the most impact, and it makes me angry. <laughs> I know that most of the time, this information released by each party is written and processed and vetted and planned well in advance of release. Someone somewhere has a calendar in an Excel spreadsheet with some heavy if-then formatting that tells them exactly when they're going to release this breaking news, either about their candidate or their opponent. This timely information is very rarely released to the American public in the public's best interest. American elections are almost scripted drama at this point. They have soap opera quality. And to be honest, I think that forcing campaigns to share their information early when it can be fact-checked and dissected fully would be to the greater benefit of the voters. So if you cast your vote by mail and you do it earlier than you would if you were going to the polls. Is there a chance that you're going to encounter information that would change your mind? Absolutely. Does it make me angry that that's a possibility? Absolutely. <laughs> I know, that's fair. Yeah, it, it would be beneficial as a whole for every election to just have the, the, I guess, dump truck of information up front and let people sort through it. Yeah. That's that's just my soapbox. I, I know it's a good soapbox. I think uh, I think it's a fair uh, critique. Now there is another objection that is like hot off the presses. Uh, it's been building all year, but especially since about June, this has become more and more of an issue with respect to mail-in voting, and that is the mail delivery issues from the United States Postal Service. It is a big concern. I am concerned about the, the system, the mail system, failing to deliver a letter that I need delivered or a package that I need to, uh, delivered. Delivery times are slower, right? So what about that? What about the, the postal service? Yeah, I mean, this global 
coronavirus pandemic has shocked the United States Postal Service revenue. I mean, they had a, a $2 billion loss last quarter. But even worse than that, we have the newly appointed Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, who only took over the USPS on June 15th of this year. And he's initiated an almost complete overhaul of the organization in the midst of a global pandemic when they are at a $2 billion loss. Um, he's removed executives, he's changed procedures, he's restricted the ability of postal workers to ensure that on-time mail delivery. Postal workers are being required to hold to strict time schedules, even if that means leaving without full trucks and having to return in the middle of the day, or leaving mail undelivered at the end of the day because they have a hard stop time. Mail delivery currently is delayed in areas of at least 18 states. I know I a lot of the drama surrounding the Postal Service revolved around it not being uh, salient, not being funded, which is a direct result of them being required to fund pensions for 75 years as soon as somebody was, was hired, which is Man. absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And that was, I think that was... I don't remember exactly. I think that was repealed this year or last year at some point. It's not as much of a burden anymore, but it was passed by Congress and specifically screwed over the Postal Service. No other organization requires pensions to be funded for 75 years. And up until that point, the Postal Service was actually fully self-funded and salient. Yes. The tax dollars didn't go to it. They yes. funded themselves by stamps, and then by merchandise, there's postal service merchandising. You can get like a postal service, uh, like midriff shirt and stuff like that. Yes. I, I mean. That's amazing. It's just, it's pretty funny, but I, it just frustrates me that this is even a problem right now. Some are, some people are concerned that this DeJoy, the new postmaster general, he's not acting in good faith. Historically, he is a Trump loyalist and a major campaign fundraiser. And he has really timed this restructure in such a way as to decrease confidence in the reliability of the Postal Service uh, and the ability of the, the postal system to handle a vote-by-mail election. Some personal issues that I have with him is that DeJoy never divested from his former company, XPO Logistics. It is a USPS contractor. <laughs> his position as Postmaster General does not require that he divest, and I believe it just requires that he works with the, the powers that be to get permission to continue ownership. So he did that. He jumped through all the correct hoops. So the divesting, or not divesting rather, is, is technically legally fine. I think it raises some severe ethical questions. Right. The according to his financial disclosures, he's got anywhere between thirty million and seventy-five million in XPO assets, which could prove more valuable in the event that the USPS either fails, yeah, worst case scenario, or needs to increase their contracting labor and budget. That seems like a pretty obvious conflict of interest to me. I don't know. I'm not the, in the ethics office right now, but uh, I, it is concerning. Yeah, gives Without me pause. Without diving too deep into conspiracy territory, 
it's just it just it raises so many questions it the questions that deserve and warrant answers i think there's one more objection it a lot of people are concerned about the security risks we've kind of touched on it with the fraud and 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 other aspects here but there's an overarching umbrella of security risks i'm actually thinking we've we've decided to put this in the like section about support for vote by mail because in addressing the security risks in researching those it seems to me that the arguments kind of favor the idea of voting by mail because the objections raised are pretty weak and not supported by evidence they're almost completely overwhelmed by evidence so um, just something, I, we'll talk about it, but it's going to be in the next section. We're going to take a commercial break because we have to record this one in two parts. Oh, yeah. So, um, Hashtag day job. That's right. And if you notice, you probably, I mean, there's not actually a commercial break, but if you notice a change in the audio, the, the quality of the audio or the way it sounds, it's because we had to break it up. So, enough with the detractors from mail-in voting. I think we can talk about uh, points in favor of mail-in votes, talk about some of the supporting issues, and then we'll summarize what we've uh, talked about and wrap this one up. Yeah. I mean, it it seems like supporters for mail-in voting have an equally long list of reasons why they think this is the best plan. Yeah. And there are actually quite a few supporters here Turns out mail-in voting is, as far as politics in America goes, it's wildly popular. Uh, The majority of Americans support a vote-by-mail solution to voting. Um, Gallup poll asked respondents if uh, the question was specifically, would you favor or oppose your state allowing all voters to vote by mail or absentee ballot in this year's presidential election? Out of all respondents... 64% said they would favor such an action, while only 34% said they would oppose. The remaining 2% didn't know. When broken down by political ideology, perhaps unsurprisingly, independents and Democrats overwhelmingly favored such a proposition. Independents by 68% and Democrats by a whopping 83%. Republicans mostly opposed such a proposition. Only 40% favored it. This, of course, isn't a reason to support vote-by-mail efforts by itself, but it provides a really good backdrop for our analysis for anybody thinking about this in general. As a representative democracy, America elects officials to carry out our collective will, or at least they should. Um, 64% of the country wanting something is a pretty compelling argument to pursue a way to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, voting rights advocates tend to support vote-by-mail initiatives if for no other reason than because voting is the cornerstone of functional democracy, like you said. When we vote, and more importantly, when we feel like our votes matter, the confidence that we have in our government increases. So whether you want big government, small government, involved government, or hands-off government, I think we can all agree that we should be confident in whatever government that we have. Suffrage is not only a really desirable thing, but it's necessary to the American ideal of democracy. It makes sense, then, that high levels of voter suppression would weaken democracy. 
there's a great quote here from Judge Thomas Crof in the Harrison v. Levine 1948 judgment, where he says, to deny the right to vote where one is legally entitled to do so is to do violence to the principles of freedom and equality. Um, in short, expanding the opportunity to vote to as many people as possible might literally be the most American thing that we can do right now. Yeah, I've always said that it's beneficial to get more people to vote. It just means that our our government is more reflective of everyone and not just the few who can actually vote. Expanding of the vote naturally leads to more security risks. The more opportunity there is to vote, the more opportunity there is to compromise the system. And that is going to hold true with anything, uh, whether it be voting or a project that you're on, a machine. The more points there are to it, the more complicated it is, the more points of failure there are. To be clear, there is no voting system, no voting structure that is 100% without risk. They're all going to have some sort of risk. However, there are some that are specific to mail-in voting. It is natural and reasonable to be concerned about the security of our electoral process. It is one of the most important things we can do as private citizens, and we have to feel like our votes are being counted accurately. Voting by mail is kind of a black box. Uh, instead of voting in a physical location and slotting our ballot into a nice receptacle and we can verify that the vote is counted right there, we kind of just put it in a mailbox or drop it off at a location and it disappears into a, a black hole. It might as well anyway, because that's all we can see. A lot of critics are taking this moral high ground of it's insecure because of lack of, of transparency, I suppose. But their high ground kind of crumbles in the face of the facts. And we've talked about a lot of these before. Using Oregon as the go-by, we already have a formidable roadmap for how voting by mail can be secure. Since 2000, the state has primarily conducted its elections by mail, and over the past 20 years, Oregonians have cast around 50 million ballots. During that time, there have only been two proven cases of fraudulent use of absentee ballots, and a total of 15 cases of any sort of voter fraud. This makes Oregon's absentee voter fraud rate around 0.000004%. Tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundred thousand, yeah. So, uh, one four millionth of a percent, I think. If I count all those zeros right. Uh, so again, absurdly low. In 2011, Washington, as we said, it followed Oregon using a similar voting system. Since then, there have been zero proven cases of any kind of voter fraud in Washington, uh, which I'm not a great mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that's zero percent. Another security concern is disappearing ballots. It is relatively easy, I should say, for a ballot to disappear. I remember as a kid, like being enthralled with the mail. You put a letter in a box, disappears, and shows up at someone else's place. You know, it was almost kind of like magic. 
it kind of seemed impossible that something could be organized across the entire country or really the entire world like that. And I really loved sending letters to my cousin, specifically just to send mail. <laughs> I don't know, I was a nerd. Even to my adult brain, it, it, it seems like an incredibly difficult task under the best of circumstances. So with the surge of mail that would come with more people mailing in their ballot, there are concerns that ballots would disappear, either accidentally or intentionally. Real Clear Politics published an op-ed that stated 28.3 million ballots were unaccounted for over a six-year period. The article glosses over some important context in favor of... Okay, I'm going to editorialize a little here because I wasn't really impressed with this op-ed. With this op-ed. They're trying to make a, a, a pretty strained point. So they, like I said, they ignore a lot of context trying to prove that this is an existential threat to America. The context of that number is that the 28.3 million that disappeared, that's the difference in ballots that were mailed to voters and never returned. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they disappeared. There wasn't a 100% return rate of the ballots they mailed out. The writer of the op-ed is just trying to insinuate that that difference is because of, I don't know, some sort of fraud or somebody going around stealing ballots. But we can't really say that those ballots are missing. It's more likely that the owners just chose not to vote. It's exactly the same as when a voter doesn't show up to a voting booth to cast a vote. The voters aren't, the votes from the voters aren't missing. They were just never cast to begin with. And even in this op-ed, the author admits that there was no evidence of fraud. And then it's like at the beginning, he admits that those missing numbers, there's no evidence of fraud. And then goes on to do like a multi-page essay on why this is fraudulent. And it was just really frustrating to read through it. It's like, you don't have any real data, you're guessing. And that, listeners, is exactly what we're trying to avoid on this podcast. No more thoughts on that one. Trying to keep the rants to a minimum. You know, that's, that's an excellent point. Those votes are not missing, um, and just like we wouldn't report millions of unaccounted for votes in in-person voting, we wouldn't do that with, with mail-in voting either. So that's an excellent point. Another point in support of vote-by-mail programs is actually the cost efficacy. I mean, obviously that's secondary to holding fair and open elections, but cost is often brought up as a mark in favor of mail-in voting. There's some good news from Colorado, for example, that says that on average, there was a 40% cost reduction across five election administration related categories. The 46 out of 64 counties that had available data spent about $9.50 per vote in the 2014 general election compared with nearly $16 per vote in 2008. Um, and those costs go for things like election officials and polling places and the costs involved with administrating the different parts of, of the voting process. And so this is this cost reduction is largely due to the reduction in those factors. They're not paying as many poll workers. They're not paying for voting machines. The initial startup cost is very quickly absorbed by the savings available when you start a vote-by-mail program. 
which is great. And there's numerous other benefits. We could talk about how it uh, makes elections more accessible to people with disabilities, to obviously to people with health risks, which is why it's being talked about right now. Yep. To people who find it difficult to travel or can't travel. It's just, it allows these marginalized groups in our society an opportunity to be less marginalized, to be represented. And regardless of whether or not it's by mail-in voting or some other system that is yet to exist, I think that that goal is something that we should all be striving to accomplish, is to bring as many people into the fold as possible. And it's just, it's, it, it seems ridiculously simple, that logic to me. Yeah, absolutely. The more Americans that vote, the more representative of America our government will be. And I think that that's, that's the best thing for our country moving forward. We want it to be representative of the whole, not just a select few. Okay, so I mean, I feel like we've heard the evidence, and I think it's about time to sum things up. So if I had to give the too long, didn't listen version of what we just covered, this is what I'd say. Americans have been voting by mail for a very long time. And states that have extensive vote-by-mail programs also have extensive security procedures to protect the integrity of their elections. And evidence of fraud, especially in the vote-by-mail context, is incredibly rare. In fact, the impact of voter fraud on anything other than a local scale is minuscule and not statistically relevant. However, not all states have the appropriate systems in place to scale their absentee voting processes, and that leaves some room for skepticism about whether they can manage that in time for the 2020 presidential election in November. Additionally, the issues with the United States Postal Service might just complicate things further by reducing work hours and introducing delivery delays. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty accurate summary of, of what we discovered. I generally, even after all of this, I, I do support the idea of voting by mail. The evidence that we have found doesn't really support the idea that it's any more fraudulent than regular voting practices, and in fact might actually be less fraudulent. As a national security professional, I do have concerns about potential ways that it could be taken advantage of. But then again, I also have concerns about how our traditional voting methods might be compromised. Uh, there was a, uh, a group of, gosh, children. I think they were in their early teens at the oldest at a hacking convention last year, 2019, or potentially 2020. I'll have to see if I can find the article. They were able to hack a mock-up of a state's voting website, the, the, the results display, basically, in something like 15 minutes, like a ridiculously quick uh, job. And there is concern about the machines, the, the computers that we use to register votes as well. I think we've all seen videos of people trying to select one person to vote for and somebody else gets selected. Generally, I think that's more likely an issue with the hit detection on the screen than it is some you know, some bad actor trying to hack the system and change the votes, but it's still a problem. You know, it just because it was an accidental change in who somebody wanted to vote didn't make it any less concerning 
from a voting perspective. Um, so I don't think the concerns that revolve around mail-in voting are any more or less relevant to the cons than concerns that just revolve around voting in general. I think uh, we'll see that in cases of fraud that have been found, it's generally a result of an actor in the system, not the system itself. It's somebody acting on behalf of a candidate stuffing ballots. It's somebody or stuffing ballot boxes. It's somebody who is working in bad faith. And you're going to have that whether or not they're at the physical, you know, polling location or if this is in the mail. I just struggle to think that the risk of not letting people vote, especially during a pandemic, outweighs the normal risks of voting in a, in a normal fashion, if that makes any sense. There's a lot of security measures that can be enacted, serialized ballots, signature comparisons, other security measures. I think, I think it's harder than people realize for somebody to just fake a ballot, to just print off thousands and mail them in because they are compared, there are registries, there are ways to authenticate those ballots. It's more likely, in my opinion, that ballots would just disappear. So if ballot harvesting is going to be a, a thing, if it's going to be legalized, that is something that needs to be addressed. There needs to be control measures put in place, just like chain of custody for evidence. There should always be, you know, a chain of custody for these ballots multiple eyes on it, that sort of thing. For this year, my initial thought is that we are unlikely to find a more secure way to vote remotely before the election, and that if you do choose to vote by mail, you should feel confident in your decision that your vote will make it. I would recommend voting early because of the problems that the Postal Service is facing. I would recommend getting your vote in as early as you are comfortable voting, just to ensure that it gets to the, uh, the ballot box, as if you will, on time. I think moving forward, if we do create or if we do want to broaden a remote voting solution, it needs to leverage our national security apparatus to develop that way. It shouldn't just be a function of Congress saying this is how we're going to do it. It should be the professionals who work to protect our nation helping, at least having a voice in developing that system. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, if you are a person for whom voting by mail is going to be the safest or most effective option, I think that you should feel very comfortable with that. My biggest concerns about moving to a widespread vote-by-mail system for the November election are the ability of states that haven't previously had these large-scale systems in place to create and administer those systems, and then the ability of the postal system to effectively handle those votes while they're trying to manage new processes that are designed to cut the work done by 64 million man-hours this year. There's a, a report out there that as of July 2020, July 13, 2020, at least 65,000 absentee or mail-in ballots for primary elections this year have been rejected because they arrived past the deadline. And often that was through no fault of the voter. So again, if you're going to do this, 
make sure that you are voting early, make sure that you understand the process for your vote by mail system. I, I have absolutely no doubts that these vote-by-mail processes can be accurate and effective and that they can be used without the threat of heaping layers of fraud. But as a voter, you have to take responsibility for the integrity of your vote. You have to find out what processes your state has in place for verifying absentee or mail-in votes, and you need to ensure that however you plan to vote, you understand what officials are doing to make sure that your vote counts. In addition to that, I think as big a threat as people would make fraud out to be in a vote-by-mail system, the bigger problem is in information tampering coming from both sides of the aisle and from international actors. I'm far more concerned as a voter that foreign governments are utilizing our communication systems to spread misinformation and to sway an election one way or another than I am that my post office representative is going to do something shady with my ballot. I would encourage you that if you are concerned about the integrity of the November election that you would do a a significant amount of research into where your information is coming from, that you would get your research and your information from direct sources about the integrity of vote-by-mail systems, about the integrity of vote-in-person systems, and about the integrity of the information that you're using to make your decision. I'll be casting my vote in person this year um, because my polling place rarely has more than five people in it at any given time, including officials, and because I have the ability and the mobility to get to my polling place safely and with the appropriate safety measures. But I don't necessarily believe that my vote is any safer because I choose to do that. And I think that we've seen that the evidence bears that out. Your vote is the safest when you understand your voting processes, when you understand the system, and when you take responsibility for the integrity of your own vote. I'd say that's a, I'd say that's very accurate analysis there. Um, so we do have some good news to end this one with. But first, we would like to remind you that we do have a Facebook page. Uh, You can find it by searching Fireside Breakdowns on Facebook. Very difficult, I know. If you you do look at Search Us Out, if you do enjoy what you have heard, if you haven't listened to the other podcasts, please listen to them. And please uh, leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, You can use the link. Uh, www.ratethispodcast.com slash fireside and that will bring up all of your options to uh, leave us a review on whatever platform allows you to leave a review Um, some platforms actually don't we found out like google podcasts i don't think you can actually leave a review on that which is weird weird but if you'd love to share your opinion with us you're welcome to do that on our Facebook page as well. So if you do not engage with podcasts in a way that allows you to leave a review, please feel free to come and share your thoughts with us on our Facebook page. Right. Or directly. We prefer it on the Facebook page, but if you want to send us an email, uh, you may add uh, firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. We will read all of the emails we get and endeavor to respond to them. Uh, 
so far we've gotten one and I'm very grateful. <laughs> and uh, we do receive some questions in person, I think, from people that we interact with. Uh, I think so far we've managed to answer all of those that we've gotten to. So we do try. We do try to do that. So Robin, if you want to take us out with uh, that good news, unless you have something else to say or add. Uh, no, I'm just ready for some good news. Hit me. All right. So this is from The Atlantic. There's some evidence that voter turnout in 2020 could reach the highest levels in decades, if not the highest levels in the past century. So we've got a surge of new voters potentially producing the most diverse electorate in American history. And experts on both sides of the aisle point to a number of indicators that signal that turnout could reach new heights this year. Signs of political interest from the number of small donor contributions made to presidential candidates to the viewership for cable news are all spiking. And in polls, very high shares of Americans already say that they're paying a lot of attention to the 2020 presidential race. So as we've talked about in this podcast, maximizing voter turnout is one of the most important things that we can prioritize. Obviously, we need to do this safely and with a mind for election security and integrity, but even though it might be difficult to find the best way forward in this crazy, crazy time, it's not impossible. I think that's exactly right. That is good news. Uh, if you haven't registered to vote yet, please register to vote. Make sure that your voice is being heard, not only in this election, but in your state and local elections. It will not hurt you <laughs> to vote. It will only benefit you. And I make that plea with everybody I... I run into. Thank you very much, everybody. We will talk to you again in two weeks. Stay safe. Bye.